Amen. Thanks, Jeff, team. Man, I so appreciate a church that sings. You know that scripture that says um, that God inhabits the praises of his people? Um, I think you just, we just experience that. It's hearing each other sing, and I so appreciate that. Well, good morning. It is, uh, it's good to be with you. If you don't know me, my name is Roland Smith, and I'm one of the pastors here. I want to ask for a confession from you first. How many of you normally are at first service, but the clocks made you come to second? If you see someone around you, first, love your first service brothers and sisters, okay? I mean, they're, they're having a hard time today. But it's great, great to be with you this morning. Uh, those of you that know me, I want to tell you something that's probably going to shock you. It's a big milestone for me. But in about two and a half months, I turn 60 years old. I know. I know. You don't believe it. I mean, there's nothing about me that would make you think I'm even close to 60, you know? Um, but I'm leaning into my OG-ness, my old guy-ness, okay? Because um, I, this season of life that I didn't want to enter, 60 was like this barrier, like I didn't want to get there. Um, but now I'm excited about it because six and a half months ago, I was given this. My new granddaughter, Harper. And so now I am leaning into my name, Papa. Now this slide has absolutely nothing to do with my sermon. <laughs> it was just a cheap trick to get her up there. And I'll let you vote. We can spend 25 minutes with me talking about the Bible, or we can just stare at this. <laughs> what would you like to do? Someone put their hand up and said, Harper. Yeah. Well, anyway... Um, there is a part of my OG-ness that does have to do with the sermon, and my wife has helped me help point this out with me, and I forget things, and I mean, I lose things. Um, I used to be someone that had everything figured out. I knew right where it was. I could go right to things, left them right in their place, and now I seem to lose more and more. But what I told her is that it's not so much that I lose things, I just forget where I put them. And so today we are going to talk about lost things, all right? We're going to talk about things that are lost. Now, I want us to acknowledge something uh, before we get started with these parables, three parables today. So just sit back. It's going to be a long service. Um, when we talk about the word, when we hear the word lost, when we say lost, and we're talking about faith and spirituality and Christianity and things like that, and people especially, we automatically sometimes think um, of people as they're not saved, right? That if someone is lost, that they're going to hell. And our job as the church is to make sure they're not lost so they don't go to hell. Um, at least that's kind of how the church has framed it for decades, and, and maybe that is what you're used to hearing. But I, I think you would be surprised to learn that the Bible almost never uses the word lost or this concept of lostness when referring to someone that is separated from what we might term everlasting life or salvation. Now, the Old Testament never does. The New Testament does sometimes talk about that and kind of points to salvation when talking about 
lost. But really, lost better fits and more often fits with someone that belongs to God but finds themselves apart in some way. And so, I really wish we would quit calling people that don't follow Jesus lost. I mean, they don't think they're lost. And it's really kind of an arrogant way for us to pinpoint someone as being lost. And more often than not, Jesus, as we'll see this morning, even talks that way with people that know God when he's telling these stories. And so lost is not synonymous with unsaved. It is synonymous with some amount and kind of separation from God, but that's not the same as salvation. Does that make sense? Okay. And I think you'll see it as we go along. So I want to propose a definition for us as we get into these parables. Lost, I would say, is a state of identity that is in conflict with a perfect relationship with God. Now, chew on that for just a sec. Lost is a state of identity that's in conflict with a perfect relationship with God. And so I would say this state of identity could be true for someone that does know Jesus or someone that doesn't know Jesus. And I know this is a pretty big paradigm shift for, for those of us that have been around church for years. But I think you'll see this as we go into these parables. So let's look at three of our 12 parables in this series. Uh, we're going to knock them out really quick this morning and go through them and then pick out uh, the things that we can walk away with in these. These are in Luke chapter 15, and Luke starts off by setting a stage that was really common in Jesus' ministry. He has a run-in with the religious leaders about his behavior. I mean, that's something that Jesus deals with throughout his ministry, and we can read in the Gospels. And Luke gives us this picture in the opening of chapter 15, so let's read that. Now, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling, saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. That's my Pharisee thing. Just this scene alone tells us so much about Jesus' ministry. It gives us a picture of how he often postured himself in challenging religious culture of the day. And he was trying to teach some things even in the environments where he was. And there were a couple of religious frameworks and identities that Jesus challenged on a regular basis. The first of them is Jesus always challenged a transactional system of faith. He always challenged a transactional system of faith. The worship of Yahweh was constructed on a system that not only included certain sacrifices, but also included behaviors, things to do, things not to do. And if you, don't do, if you do something you're not supposed to do, then there are things you can do in order to make everything okay again. So transactions going back and forth, back and forth. And he also challenged a system defined by clean and unclean. Jonathan talked about this a couple of weeks ago. 
clean and unclean. People and things were generally labeled clean or unclean. The things you ate, the things you came in contact with, the jobs that you did could all be clean or unclean and also cause you to be seen as clean or unclean. So let me give you an illustration. Let's say that you're wearing a white white t-shirt and you fall into the mud. Well, the white t-shirt becomes muddy. And that's how Pharisees and religious leaders saw religious life during this time. That there were things that would cause you to become dirty. But Jesus, in eating and hanging out with sinners and tax collectors, he's trying to show something totally different. That his presence doesn't make him unclean. In fact, he's bringing the kingdom of God to them and changing our identities, right, which we know now. And so Jesus comes on the scene and is basically saying, in our illustration, is not that the t-shirt becomes muddy, it's that the mud becomes shirty. Does that make sense? The mud is changed. Not the t-shirt. These kinds of tables and meals and gatherings with sinners and tax collectors, muddy things, were the things that Jesus used all the time in fellowshipping with the unclean to make a point. And so we see in this opening exchange in Luke that the religious Pharisees and scribes are grumbling and frustrated that he's sitting there with these unclean people. And so Jesus hears their grumbling and decides to tell three parables or three stories in response. And so he starts with a story about a lost sheep, our first parable. So he told them this parable, which one of you having a hundred sheep And losing one of them does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after that one that is lost until he finds it. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now hold on to that last sentence and the word repentance. We're going to talk about it. Now, I don't know if you realize what Jesus just did there. He like poked the Pharisees really hard in this story. I know we kind of see Jesus in these pictures and stuff. Um, we're kind of taught of holy Jesus, meek and mild, you know, blessing people with an aura around him. But you know what? I think Jesus was uh, a little bit rebellious and sarcastic in his kingdom wisdom. I think it was more like that. Picture this scene again because we don't often see what's going on here. Religious leaders are standing somewhere near and grumbling that Jesus is sitting here with sinners and tax collectors, people that are unclean. Well, guess what? Some of these people at the table could be themselves or be friends with shepherds. 
because shepherds at best were really low on the social ladder and at worst, just plain unclean. I mean, think about it. They lived in the fields with sheep. They um, were around manure and birthing sheep and blood and all these other aspects that we can read in Scripture that make you unclean. And so Jesus begins this retort of religious leaders by asking them, suppose you had a hundred sheep. There's no way one of them would have a hundred sheep because they would risk being unclean. And so he's responding to their questions sarcastically and putting them at the table with everyone else. And I think the beautiful thing is He's telling everyone else at the table, these grumbling, judgmental people, you belong here and you're loved. So this parable obviously illustrates a sheep that previously was part of the flock and that is lost somehow. Jesus' point is that the shepherd will stop at nothing to return the sheep to the flock. So there's a lost sheep, and then he launches into talking about a lost coin. And he says, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There's that phrase again. We'll get to it. And there goes Jesus again, poking the Pharisees with the characters of the story. In the first, this unclean social outcast shepherd is the hero of the story. And here, the character of the one that searches God is a woman. I can just hear the Pharisees grumbling louder and louder. And it's not in Luke's reporting, but you, you just know they were irritated by that. The woman in this parable is shown to turn her house upside down till she finds her lost coin and then rejoices with others when it is found. She will stop at nothing to return the coin to the place it belongs, with her. So a lost sheep, then a lost coin. And then Jesus tells a very popular and famous parable that uh, most of us, I'm sure, have heard about a father and two sons. And this is a little bit long, but I want us to read it just like the other ones. Then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his field to feed the pigs. Now, we can't dive in deep here, but I want you to catch that right there because Jesus just set that son up to be unclean. If you were around pigs, you were unclean. 
He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off, and he went to his father. But while he was still far off, the father saw him and was filled with compassion. And he ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And get the fatted calf and kill it. Take a break, just a sec. When I read this, I think poor fatted calf. <laughs> Let's say it together. Okay, I really do. And let us eat the fatted calf and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate. So three stories, three parables. So let me ask you a question. What is the most important identity of all of these lost Things. What's the most important identity of these lost things? Now, I think we might first just say, well, they were lost. Well, I want to propose something. I believe the most important lesson from all of these parables is this. If you walk away with nothing else, take this home. The primary identity of each of these lost things was not being lost it was that they belonged. Was the sheep lost? Yeah. But it belonged to the hundred, to the shepherd. Was the coin lost? Yes. But it belonged first to the woman. Was the son lost? Absolutely. But he was the father's long before he was lost. No matter where you are ever in your journey of faith, figuring out Jesus, walking mountaintops or valleys in life, you always belong somewhere. And that somewhere, like the Son, is with the Father. When you feel distant from God, not hearing His voice, not sensing His presence, still you are not someone that is lost as much as you are someone that belongs. Your primary identity, all of us, is one of belonging. Another truth I think that we can take from these parables is when we encounter others besides ourselves, both those that claim Jesus and those that don't. And remembering that lostness is this state of identity in conflict with a perfect relationship with God. It's something that we can all find ourselves in. And so we shouldn't judge others by the amount of their lostness or really not become one of the Pharisees determining who's clean and unclean. Let me ask you this. 
what did the sheep do to get lost? Well, I don't know. I mean, the sheep is stupid usually, and so probably wandered off or was eating grass and the herd walked off, and then all of a sudden, there they are lost. I've felt like a sheep sometimes in my journey of faith. I've got my head down in the world, and all of a sudden, where is everyone? What did the coin do to get lost? Well, nothing. It's inanimate. It didn't like walk off to get lost, but it was lost. And what did the son do? Well, he did walk away on purpose. But when the son returned, expecting to be chastised and made a lowly servant, was ushered back into his place of belonging with a robe and a party. The most important thing about all these lost things is that they belonged somewhere and the person they belonged to did all they could to return them to their place of belonging. Your father, my father, is always searching and striving to return us to a perfect relationship with him. And that's part of the point of the cross as well. The point is not if you accidentally strayed, found yourself lost somehow, or wandered off intentionally. Those are the things that we like to point out about other people. Their lostness, how much they're lost, and how they got lost. But God's point is always that they belong somewhere, and that somewhere is with him. At the end of the last parable, we actually see something that's kind of ironic. Let's read that. Now, this elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. The slave replied, your brother has come, has come and your father has killed the fatted calf. There you go. Because he got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, listen, for all these years, I've been working like a slave for you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, he can't even say brother, this son of yours comes back who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has now been found. And so this older brother, he gets angry because he is following transactional religion, transactional rules of the father. And his brother didn't follow those rules, but he got a party when he returned. Do we sometimes get mad <laughs> at things like that? I think so. The older brother is measuring the relationship of someone else, not on their belonging, but on the transaction of who followed the rules and who didn't. Transactional religion will always cause us, those who seemingly do the right things, to judge those who don't follow the rules or behave. And we just can't do that. 
And so to me, the older brother seems more lost than the younger brother. Because he breaks one of Jesus' biggest commandments, to love your neighbor as yourself. All of these parables remind us of that important principle in our faith as we follow Jesus. Christianity is a faith defined by grace, love, and belonging, not transaction. The transaction that was there has been taken care of by Jesus. And so we don't live in that anymore. We live in belonging. That transactional practice will reel us back to sacrificial systems of our Hebraic roots. But grace propels us forward into different ways of thinking and also different ways of being with others and loving others. So what about that word repentance that we encountered twice? Well, I don't know about you. I didn't grow up in church, but came to church in my 20s, and immediately I kind of was taught and thought that repentance was like a change of behavior. Several times I was told repentance means a 180-degree change in what you're walking in, behavior, you know. It doesn't mean that. The word there is metanoia. The Greek word. And think of meta, think of where we get metamorphosis, this beautiful, expansive change. Think of a butterfly, right? A metamorphosis, and noia, which points to thought or knowledge. And so it's a change of thinking. It's a change of mind. A beautiful change of mind is repentance. I would propose that everyone we see, everyone we come in contact with, everyone in this room, me, you, can exist on some spectrum of being lost. Now remember, we're not talking about salvation. We're talking about a perfect relationship with God, a, a, a distance of that. Those of us that are doing our best to live out the principles of the kingdom in our lives can sometimes find ourselves like sheep only to look up and the herd is gone, or the younger brother choosing to walk away, or worse, even perhaps the older brother thinking we're in perfect relationship, only to find ourselves forgetting our basic call to love our neighbor. Likewise, those that don't claim Jesus, who find themselves subject to proclamations like this in Scripture, I have come to seek and save the lost. Well, that absolutely can be interpreted in pointing toward salvation, the cross, atonement. If the target of that statement are those that haven't surrendered their life to Jesus, then the same is still true. They are in a state of unperfect relationship with God. But their identity, like ours, is one of being designed to belong to the Father. All of us, humanity, were designed to be with God. That is our perfect place of being. My friend Deb Hirsch is noted as pointing out 
that we're often quick, like the older son, to point out that someone's behavior or way of living is the most important truth about them. Think about it. Their lifestyle, their sin, their beliefs, their lostness, we would say, we sometimes claim is the most important thing that identifies them. However, Deb points out this. The most important truth about someone else is also the most important truth about you and me. We are all first and foremost made in the image of God. Imago Dei. Slim Elohim is what Genesis 1 says of all people. And of course, Genesis 3 comes along and illustrates how sin disrupts everything in that perfect relationship with God. Our state of identity can show up as various struggles in life and ways that we're living. But those are not the most important truth about us or other people because as Deb will say, remember, Genesis 1 comes before Genesis 3. So the most important thing is our Genesis 1 identity. And so we can't get caught in the posture of the older brother, viewing others, because the older brother is being the antithesis of one of the greatest commandments to love others. Okay, so I want to ask you a question in wrapping up. Do you feel like you belong? I mean, really belong. Belong to the Father. Do you feel like you have this perfect place designed for you to be no matter where you are in life, no matter what choices you make, no matter how you identify, no matter what doubts you're having, do you know that you belong? You may have called yourself a Christian for years, but still never felt like you really belong. Maybe you always had the older brother in the church keeping check on your behavior. Well, know that you do belong. And the father is searching the fields, sweeping the floors, turning the house upside down, and watching expectantly down the road for you to take your place with him where you're meant to be. You may be someone exploring faith, Jesus, Christianity. I don't know what I believe. I'm trying to figure it out. Well, we know that your perfect design as an image of God is with the Father. That's where you're designed to be. And so the same is true for you. This is true for anyone. There are no special prayers, no codes, no handshakes to learn, not even a behavior that has to change first. That's the beauty of grace in Jesus. It is simply running up the road to the one whom you look like, the Father, your God. You know that old hymn, Amazing Grace, I don't know how many thousands of times some of us have sung it. And obviously the lyrics of that song 
um, written, by the way, by a slave trader turned pastor. It's beautiful. Um, they obviously point to the cross, like a decision that I made for Jesus. It obviously does. But it also uses language from Luke 15, which I would say more represents a believer that is strayed when it says, I was lost, but now found. And so that song is not just a rear view mirror song, just singing about some decision that I made 20 years ago or five years ago or whenever, which we should be thankful for. But it's a song for the future too. It's a song that represents our constant spectrum of lostness and straying and coming back to a father that will take us, embrace us, and say, and you belong here. The hope for us and the hope for others rests in this truth. Not that we're lost, but that we belong somewhere else, to someone else, God. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you, and um, I just pray for each person in this room and watching online, because um, I know the stories are endless of our identities, um, the wreckage in our past, the things that we hide because we're scared that we'll be unclean. And I just pray, Holy Spirit, that as we are about to sing these words, that grace would overwhelm us. that your love would usher us towards you. And that in our lostness and our brokenness, our waywardness, our seeking, that you would embrace us. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us?
intentionally at times in trying to preach against clean and unclean in transaction we actually make people feel that way um, I was thinking as I was standing down there I've got a deconstruction group that meets at my house on Monday nights people with PTSD over church and faith and trying to figure out where do I belong and you may be in that journey in different ways. And so what I want to leave as like a benediction is that your identity is not church. Your identity is with whom you belong to. And so as you go from this place, whatever weight you carry, your Father is waiting for you to run up the road to Him. And so go and walk in that identity. Go with God. <laughs>